You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Okay, Psalm chapter 4, please follow along with me. <clears throat> to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Bow your heads in prayer with me. Father, thank you for your word, and I ask now that you would come in a special way through your spirit, and that you would open your word for us and open our hearts to hear from you. And I pray that, Father, that you would, um, that you would come and just speak in a, um, in a unique way to each of our hearts. I don't know where each of us is at this morning as we come in, but Father, you do. And so I pray, Father, that you would take your word and that you would do a work of transformation inside of each of us, that you would um, heal the wounded and the sick, you would strengthen the weak and the downtrodden, um, that you would give courage to those who are fearful, that you would calm the anxious and the worried, that you would call to repentance those who are walking in rebellion. Father, I pray that you would do all these things and more, trusting that you are far more able to do far more than we um, could ever ask or imagine. So I pray, Father, that uh, you would do that through um, the preaching of your word and that you would take the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth and um, sanctify them and use them for your honor, your glory, and the good of your people. I trust you to do this work in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Psalm chapter 4. <clears throat> When I sat down to study this passage uh, this last week, I was kind of in a, in a tough place emotionally. Um, it's been a long um, couple of months for a lot of reasons, and uh, my heart was just, um, my heart was caught up. Couldn't, uh, couldn't wrap my mind around the rhythm of this psalm. You know what that feels like when you, when you open God's Word and you try to study it, and you just, it feels like there's a, a, a disconnect. Um, kind of where I was when I began to study this psalm and just couldn't wrap my mind around the rhythm of it. Um, spent a couple of days trying to outline, take notes, pray and listen, and it just, just wasn't happening. Uh, I think uh, what I felt was I kind of felt weak, or probably too weak to make any sense of this psalm, so I did what I um, often do, um, turn to... Charles Spurgeon's commentary on the Psalms. Um, 
beautiful commentary if you don't have it. If you can get a set, I would, would highly recommend it. Spurgeon's commentary on the Psalms is known as the treasury of David. This has this picture in my mind of a vault full of priceless gems. What I found in his comments on this chapter was um, both healing and strengthening for me. A couple of things that he says. Um, he says that, the, that this psalm, Psalm 4, um, actually teaches us to approach God first with our troubles before approaching other men and women. I have an interesting thought. You might think like the, the easiest thing for us at times when we have trouble in our life is to pick up the phone, send a text message, post a Facebook post, whatever it may be, right? We call people before we call God oftentimes. Spurgeon says that this psalm is an encouragement to approach God with our troubles first. He says that the God that uh, we serve is not going to be in the business of helping us out in the midst of six troubles to leave us wanting in the seventh. That's an interesting image to know that if God has helped you in your distress in the midst of six troubles and you're in the midst of the seventh one now, you can trust and know He's not going to leave you wanting. He also says um, that God does nothing by halves. He will never cease to help you until you cease to have a need. There's only one place that you or I are going to cease to have a need, and that's in heaven. So he's not going to cease helping you. He doesn't do things in halves. He does things in completeness until it's complete. Philippians reminds us that God does not discontinue a work in us until it is complete. So those are some things that, um, that um, were very helpful to me. Um, he also points out that... Um, we will speak more boldly to other people if we have a more constant conversation with the Lord. So think about that. If you are constantly on your face before the Lord, think about how boldly and without fear and how much courage you can have to then speak with people. Basically what he says is he says that he who dares to face his maker will not tremble before the sons of men. Love that statement. He who dares to face his maker will not tremble before the sons of men. He follows it up with this statement. The petty courts of human opinion don't hold a candle to the king's bench in heaven. The petty courts of human opinion don't hold a candle to the king's bench in heaven. So Spurgeon had a way with words. Had a way with words. On a personal note, as I read those words, I was reminded again that I struggle often with a fear of man. My mind and my heart oftentimes get very weighed down, um, heavy with worry about the court of public opinion. I find it too easy to forget that the Lord's opinion of me in Christ Jesus, along with um, what the Bible would uh, probably um, teach as a, uh, a, a spirit-empowered obedience to the instructions of His Word. So God's opinion and then His work through me and causing me to be obedient to Him, that's all that God is, is actually worried about because that's what brings Him glory. 
And so at the end of the day, um, when, it, when, I, when it comes to me facing my fear of man, I need to remember that uh, any person's opinion of me that doesn't align with the gospel actually originates from only one other source, right? And this is the same for you. I, I put this in the I terms and the me terms just as a personal confession, confession that I need to be reminded of this. And you may need to be reminded of this too, that there are only two opinions of you and only one of them matters. That's God's opinion of you. The only other opinion that can be had of you the only other source that could have an opinion of your soul is the enemy of your soul. It's the accuser of your soul. He's known as the accuser of the brethren. There's no gray space. There's no in-between. He's a lion. And he seeks to steal and to kill, destroy. He is a liar. He is the father of all lies. There is no truth in him whatsoever. He believes his own rhetoric. He's so good at lying. I'm grateful though, in the midst of that, to know that when God saves a man or a woman in the gospel, he gives that man or that woman the Holy Spirit at that moment. And then the Holy Spirit, from that point forward, leads saved men and women into the truth that sets them free. That's what you and I can bank on. We can rest on. Now, now the question you might be asking after all of this introduction is, what does all of that have to do with Psalm chapter 4? Right? What does that all have to do with Psalm chapter 4? Um, if you would, consider the context of Psalm 4 with me. The context for this psalm appears to be the same context as Psalm 3. And there are some commentators who try to divorce Psalm 3 from Psalm 4 as well as Psalm 5 and 6. Uh, I'm of the opinion that Psalm 3, 4, 5, and 6 are all in the same context. Um, and I think you're going to hear that from other guys that are preaching in the coming weeks as well. So I think Psalm 4 is in the same context as Psalm 3. If it is then it makes sense. If it's not, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It feels like a loose pearl of a necklace that's just fallen on the floor and scattered. Um, so if it is, if Psalm 4 is in the same context, meaning time of life, author, all those things, as Psalm 3, then uh, you might remember last week as we looked at Psalm 3 that David, in this context, is running for his life from his very own son. Okay. Um, his son is trying to murder him. He's chasing him down. Psalm 4 has a political feel to it as well um, as, you, as you read it. It seems like there are some people that are questioning David's ability to lead the nation either during or, or immediately after the day when all hell broke loose with his son Absalom. That's what it seems like. Um, need to remember that, that David, um, King David, is a very highly public leader, very visible. As soon as the news about Absalom, his son, betraying him, and his subsequent attempts of trying to murder him, as soon as that news would have hit the news feed, people would have been 
begun talking about it. This is what we do, right? As we see something in our news feed, we start talking. And they, I think they would have started talking amongst themselves. I think that's the context of Psalm 4. I think they were wondering if, if David is still fit to lead. I think they would have held meetings to discuss their opinions about him. Pretty soon, those opinions would then hit the airwaves. And then what would happen? The entire country would be in an uproar. Again, not unlike the steady flow and rising current of public opinion that we see every day in our social media feeds, right? So you see how, how a news feed itself or a social media feed can influence the way that we think and react and respond to news. This would have hit the public news feed quickly. People would have begun to talk. You might think of this um, today in our age and in your life maybe. Um, you might think of this um, like the water cooler talk that happens in your job, right? We complain about our employers. We complain about our coworkers. We talk about each other. Very similar, I think. Happens when get together and gossip about their other friends that aren't there. Happens when kids get upset with their parents for some decision they made. At the end of the day, everybody has an opinion about everyone and everything, and we're more than happy to share it. Especially if it's just a button that says share. Because for the most part, that doesn't have any actual relational consequences. It's not like you're getting together face-to-face to actually talk something out, right? And I think the people around David um, definitely had opinions about him. And I don't think they were afraid to make their opinions known publicly. So here's the question. I'm going to ask this question a couple different ways. Probably not going to be on the screen in front of you, but let me ask it a couple different ways so that if you want to write it down, this is probably the main question driving uh, what I think I'm about to preach. I think it's what's behind or at least captured in this psalm. Here's the question. What, What do you do? What do you do when the people around you have an opinion of you that aligns more with the enemy of your soul rather than the savior of your life? What do you do when the people around you, when their opinion of you aligns more with the enemy of your soul, the accuser of your soul, rather than aligning with the savior of your life? What do you do when your own opinion of you aligns more with the accuser of your soul, the enemy of your soul, the combatant of your soul, rather than the savior of your life? What do you do? Look at what David does in these circumstances. The first thing he does is he calls out to the Lord. Verse 1, David says, Answer, when I call, O God, of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. David knew that there were some very powerful influential people who were dead set on smearing his name knew this how scary would that be for you how scary is it just to know that there might be one or two not just a majority of people who um, want to see you removed from your position 
in your workplace. Think about your workplace. How scary can that be? How infuriating can that be when you know that's happening? How devastating um, can it be to you to know that, that maybe your own child, much like Absalom, has stirred up the rest of the family? And not just the rest of the family, but the entire nation against you. How scary would that be to be in that situation? I think it would have been fearful at at least, devastating at most for David as he's facing down the, the, the court of public opinion. I can imagine the knee jerk reaction if I'm in David's shoes, right? He's king of the nation, he's got a lot of resources at his fingertips, right? I mean, if, if I had an entire army at my beck and call, I would just imagine that in my sinfulness, I might use that in ways that would be very destructive. And we know that kings throughout history have done this. People wield great power in very poor ways because of sin. I would imagine maybe the knee-jerk reaction uh, for David would be to call everyone on the carpet at least, maybe deploy some military forces to quiet the dissension down. Maybe the equivalent in our day and age, but maybe what we rush to um, is the social media rant. Let me just kind of blow my top and blow some steam here. Let everybody know just how uncomfortable I am, just how upset I am. Um, Maybe it'd be a bunch of gossip instead. I'm going to phone call a bunch of friends and let them know just how ticked off I am and how hurt and how scared and so on and so forth. David does not do that. David does something different than what I think we're often tempted to be and to do. Not that David is perfect, because we know David's story. Go back to last week and listen to that sermon again. The man's got issues, just like every one of us in this room, which gives all of us great hope. David, though, in this moment, does something different. He calls out to the Lord. He, he, he begs the Lord to answer him. He, he refers to God as the God of my righteousness there in verse 1. He, he remembers that God has given him relief in the past when he was in distress. And he asks the Lord to be gracious towards him. So in a nutshell here, David goes before the Lord before he goes before other men and women. That's the progression here. He speaks with the Lord before he speaks to men and women. He remembers that the Lord is the justifier of his children. He doesn't need to justify himself. He doesn't need to defend himself. He doesn't need to prove himself to the men and women who are coming against him. The Lord is his justifier. The Lord proves him righteous and right and godly and good. Such a beautiful picture of what to do when you are afraid of the court of public opinion. <coughs> Let me pause for a minute and just say that one of the things that I love about preaching, especially preaching verse by verse and chapter by chapter, is that when you, when you choose, so our, our elder development team, we chose this series months ago. Months and months ago. Beginning of the year type of months ago, I think. And um, there's no way to project where our hearts will be in a season when a text comes up that way. You're forced to preach what's in front of you. So many times I would say, I've so often just sat on my porch with my wife and read through the text and then thought about and talked about, man, this is what's happening in this season of our lives. 
and the Lord has me preaching this this week, if I could get out of it, I would. If I could choose to preach something completely different, if I get on my own hobby horse, so to speak, and preach that, I would preach that, not this. The beauty of God's sovereignty in preaching and in His Word has blessed me and rocked me to my core and scared the ever-living heck out of me too, over and over and over again. I say that to then say this. When you are afraid because of the court of public opinion, when you are afraid, you can come before the throne of God's grace. And you can be reminded that in Christ, you are perfect. You are spotless. The blood of Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, then the blood of Christ has washed you clean. You have been cleansed perfectly. You now have a white robe, not filthy stains from the sin. You belong to your Father in heaven. There is, there's nothing in all of creation that can reverse that blood signature on your adoption papers as a child of God. Your Father will never leave you or forsake you. No matter how hard the circumstances of your life are and no matter how deep you fall into sin, your Father will never leave you or forsake you. Why? Because He's the justifier. He has justified you. And if he justified you and made you right, he sure ain't going to leave you on your own again. It's a good father, not a bad father who abandons his kids. He's a good father who sticks and stays. It's the beauty of this passage. These are the truths that I think gave David then the courage. If he first approached God, calling out to him here, Then the next picture of what David does is as though David gets up out of his prayer closet, been kneeling down next to his bed, and it's like he gets up out of that kneeled prayerful position, and he walks out the door of his house, and he stands in front of people, and he addresses them. And his address of the people in the next few verses is is just absolutely fascinating. The second thing David does is he rebukes his enemies. That's fascinating. He rebukes his enemies. Verse 2, David knew that he had enemies in his kingdom. Though he had pardoned the thousands of people who had risen up against him in his son Absalom's rebellion, he still had some people who were talking trash, right? That's the context. And he addresses them in the form of a rebuke in verse 2. Here's what he says, Oh men, How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. It's an honest and direct rebuke of his enemies. They loved to shame David rather than to honor him. They didn't know what honor was. They knew what it was to shame. They loved the pursuit of a sizzling story filled with controversial lies. Don't we do that too? Don't we? This is something that's like gets all jacked up and we see something on Facebook that's like, man, that was a good Gotta click that because it looks sizzling, controversial, gets your attention. I think we call that clickbait, right? We fall into it. 
We wind up living an external life rather than living an internal life. David, um, David wants his enemies to think about their um, preoccupation with controversy, dishonor, shame, preoccupation with lies. His use of the word selah, um, once again, that word is meant to um, cause us to pause, press the pause button, think about this, digest this. David wants them <coughs> to stop and think about their sin against him. Pretty clear about that. I think that we all should be in the regular business of pressing pause to reflect on how we've sinned against one another. Let's just do that now. Press pause. Look down at the piece of paper in front of you here taking notes. Write down one way that you sinned against someone in the last week. Do that now. Reflect on it. <coughs> Here's the reason I do that. It's so easy for us to get stuck in the, uh, the kind of the pit of um, victimizing. I'm the victim. Everybody is against me. We get stuck there. I'm just admitting. We're pretty sinful, pretty broken people. So we should all be in the regular business of pressing pause. Reflect on how we sinned against one another. Now that you've done that, now that you're thinking about that, it's important for us to regularly acknowledge how we dishonor one another and shame one another and help to spread lies about other people who are created in God's image. James is really clear. Our tons are wickedness, right? They're evil. One moment we're singing good praise songs, man. We got our hands up in the air. We're bobbing back and forth a little bit to the song. Praising Jesus. Your name is great, right? And then the next minute, thought goes through our head. But man, that person sure pissed me off, right? Like we just bounce back and forth between a quote-unquote worship of God and a cursing of those who are created in His image. This is the brokenness of all of us in this room. Broken. And our tongues are broken too. So we should be constantly thinking about um, But I do want to say I think we should especially think about how our sin is not just against other sinners. It's actually primarily against a sinless God. So one of the things that I love about David, who wrote this psalm, the things I love about him is his ability to wear his heart on his shirt sleeve. David's an honest man, I, I, despite his dishonesty in other places. They, they, when it comes to emotions and his relationship with the Lord, he, he's honest, he's direct. Psalm 51 is uh, David's prayer of repentance after reflecting on his sin against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. David had committed um, what uh, most and a lot of scholars have called uh, political rape, using his power to have sex with a woman. And David had committed that kind of a sin, and he used his power as a king to murder Bathsheba's husband to cover up his sin. After he's confronted by Nathan, he falls down on his face to the Lord in anguish. And his prayer in Psalm 51, it's a, it's a cry to the Lord to not take his spirit from him. And, he, and David, in that psalm, he recognizes that um, though he had sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, and the entire nation, in fact, the entire family, so to speak, his primary sin was against the Lord and Lord alone. 
Now, you know, his prayer, when he says that against you and you alone, O God, have I sinned, that prayer isn't to diminish his sin against other sinners. It's just simply the act of acknowledging that our sin is primarily at its greatest when it's against a sinless God. <coughs> this is what all of us, I think, need to pause and reflect upon. Not just the way that you sinned against someone this last week. Pause and reflect how that sin against someone else is actually a reflection of a greater sin between you and the Lord. How do you do that? You start asking questions. What is it that I've mischaracterized about you, Father? What is it that I've not trusted about you, Father? What is it that I have believed lies about you, Father, that you won't take care of me, that there, that there, that there, that there will be too much for me to handle, um, that you won't give me comfort, that you are not faithful, that you actually don't love me, that you won't provide peace someday? What is it that you're so afraid of admitting about God that you mistrust about him, that you actually seek the fulfillment of that through someone else by sinning against them, either by trying to control someone, trying to manipulate someone, right? Trying to shame them and tear them down, spread lies about them, whatever it might be, using someone. All of our sin against one another in the horizontal relational realm is just simply the outcome of our vertical relationship with our Father being at a loss. Ask that question. Like simply you would ask this question. How is my relationship with the Lord? And in what ways has that brokenness in my relationship with my Father made its way out in the horizontal realm of relationship with people around me? Because that's the primary interest of the Scriptures. We need to think about the ways that we dishonor and shame and buy into lies about our Savior. Every one of us at the end of the day has a social media feed rolling through our hearts and minds. And that social media feed that is spinning through our hearts and minds is actually full of dishonor and full of lies and full of wickedness about our Savior. And when we listen to it rather than preaching to it, we get controlled by that rather than stepping in and putting on the mind of Christ and making war against that. We honestly, um, in this passage, need to feel the sting of this rebuke personally. We need to be reminded that although we feel the sting of other people's sin against us, we are still sinners in need of saving. And we not, not only need to feel the sting of our own sin, we need to listen to the instructions of our Father in Heaven through other sinful people. That's an interesting, complex this is exactly what David does next. First, he rebukes his enemies. Third thing that he does is he begins to instruct his enemies in the face of the court of public opinion. He says this. He says, but know that the Lord has part the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now that's an interesting, just for a minute, because I won't spend much time on this and it's not in my notes. But it's just interesting. If you just look at the way that that's worded, if you're kind of a grammar freak like me, um, he's talking to his enemies, right? He's talking to somebody. Hey, I just want you to know. I want you to know that the Lord has set apart the 
godly for himself, right? So there's obviously a group of godly people that have been set apart in, uh, uh, in juxtaposition to um, ungodly people, right? So there's a contrast here. There are some godly folks and some ungodly folks. And he says, hey, the Lord is the one who sets apart the godly for himself. And then the next thing he says, look what he says. Hey, the Lord hears when I call him. Uh, that's David. That's crazy to me. Like, that takes some guts. He knows that his enemies have an opinion of him that is pretty low, pretty shallow, pretty in line with his enemy. And he goes, hey, guys, guess what? Let me just instruct you for a minute. Now that I've rebuked you and kind of showed you your sin, let me just instruct you for a minute and just show you this. There's two groups. There's an ungodly group and a godly group. And God has set the godly group apart for himself. And by the way, I'm part of that group. The Lord hears me when I call to him. There's, a, there's an underlying question. Does he hear you? That would be the underlying question, I think, that he's um, kind of implying to his enemies. The Lord hears me. Let's see if he hears you. Reminds me of Elijah, right? If you remember, might remember the story of Elijah when he's, when he's up there and he's combating all the prophets of Baal. He's <coughs> like, where's your God at? Up there in the restroom, maybe? Maybe he's taking a nap. I don't know. Like just kind of mocking them. It just reminds me of that story. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. See, in, in the midst of being confronted with our sin, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I'm in your own walk, your own journey. In the midst of being confronted with sin, it's kind of easy. Easy to forget that we belong to the Lord in that moment. I just, I don't know why that's one of the things that's the easiest to forget. Like, somebody comes and confronts you and they're like, hey, bro, hey, sis, like, you're walking in sin. Like, this ain't right. This ain't good. One of the first things is forget that I belong to the Lord. Forget that I should probably honor him in what I'm doing. Start thinking, you know what? That person's my enemy. How dare you come and tell me that I'm. We get there quick, don't we? Easy to get angry with the person who comes and rebukes us. Deep down inside, every one of us has a little bit of snowflake in us, don't we? Easy to go to bed with our minds and our hearts swirling, spinning out with anxiety, fear, hurt, anger. Easy to go from bad to worse in our walk with the Lord as we begin to put our trust in our own strength, our own ability to either manipulate or coerce or refashion, or reframe, or whatever. Um, easy to do that. Why do I say that? Why do I say it's easier to do that? Well, simply because of this. The path is wide, and many people are on it, and it leads to destruction, right? And then there's this tiny little narrow path, really narrow. Very few are on it. What does it lead to? Life everlasting that, by the way, shares its fruit here on earth, Right? Like, if, you're, if your reputation is the story of your character, then ask that question. What is my reputation? What is the story of my character? Wide path, narrow path. Someone who the Lord hears or not. Much easier to walk on a wide path. Much harder to walk on a narrow path. 
There's kind of some tight accountability on a narrow path, isn't there, when you think about it? Like, sides of that street drop off quick. Great thing about the wide path, you play around all you want, right? Everybody else is doing the same thing. And you want to play around in the ditch for a little while over in the middle here, probably not a big deal because the people on that wide path ain't going to give a hoot what's happening in your life. But on that narrow path, since there's so few of us on that path, pretty tight boundaries. Difficult. That's the picture. And let me just ask this question. Why, why, should, it, why should it be easy anyways? When we have a Savior that uh, came here for the joy of the cross to die, like we were reading this in our prayer group this morning, that at the end of the day, Jesus had nothing to gain from this world in this world. He had everything to lose, and he knew it, and he was full of joy for it. So why would our journey of picking up our cross as disciples that we claim to be here in America, why should it be any less hard than what Jesus went through? Why? So that would be an Americanized version of the gospel that's not true to think anything less than that, right? David instructs his enemies here. Instructs his enemies to remember that the Lord sets his children apart from the ungodly. This has been the contrast that's been there from Psalm 1, right? The wicked go from bad to worse. The godly go from bad to better. Kind of the picture. That's the fruit in a believer's life. And there is a stark contrast once again here between the godly and the ungodly. The Lord hears his children, but he does not listen to his enemies. Do you like to listen to your enemies? Let me ask that. Why would God listen to his enemies? God doesn't listen to his enemies. God listens to his children. The beautiful thing about God is he takes enemies and makes them children through the cross of Christ. That should blow your mind, right? That should be transformative in the way that we walk out these things. God's children should not go to sleep angry. They should lie down to sleep. They should ponder their sin. They should ponder their need for a perfect Savior. At the end of the day, the court of public opinion should not define a child of God. The child of God will not be controlled by fear, will not be controlled by weird, will not be controlled by doubt. Why? Because they know who and whose they are. They know who they belong to. Therefore, they know what their identity is. Their, their hearts will be silent before the Lord because they have taken their fear, they've taken their pain, they've taken their doubts to the Lord first. They've contemplated God's faithfulness. This is the picture of what a believer does when the fear of man comes into the bedroom of their soul like the valley of the shadow of death. This is a clear picture of the deep communion and relationship that happens with the Lord in the midst of our battle against Satan, sin, and the grave. This kind of communion, this kind of relationship with the Lord, it helps a person to rest. To rest. Which is exactly what David does as he closes out this psalm. Rest his case with the Lord in verses 6 through 8. Out to the Lord once more. That's kind of the turn. Calls out to the Lord once more. He says, Man, there are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain, their wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. 
Some scholars have rightly pointed out, I believe, that if Psalm 3 is known as the morning psalm, it's the psalm that you sing when you get up in the morning. And psalm 4 is the evening psalm. It's the, it's the psalm or the prayer that you would pray or sing before you go to sleep. If, if that's a true characterization of Psalm 3 and 4, And Psalm 3 is the psalm that David sang when he woke up on the day when all hell broke loose with his son Absalom. And then Psalm 4 is the evening psalm that he prayed when he went to bed that night. If that's true, then in these final three verses, what David does is he simply rests his case with the Lord. He, he returns from his public rebuke and his public instruction of his enemies and he goes back to his prayer closet, goes back to his bedside, back to that dark room to commune once again with the Lord in prayer. Interesting picture of what shapes the life of a believer. Start your day in prayer and scripture with the Lord for however long it takes for you to know that you have spent time with the Lord. Go about your day, rebuke your enemies if you need to, instruct your enemies if you need to, be rebuked as the Lord does. Be instructed as you should be, and at the end of the day, end it back with your Lord again, back in the scriptures and in prayer and in communion with him. That's it's a picture of a tough day spent with the Lord. In these last verses, um, David laments. He kind of cries out at first that many of his enemies are searching wildly for some new God to show them something good, right? There are many who say, who will show us some good? Looking for something good here, God. Give me something good. Who's going to give that to me? What God am I going to look to? Because the God of David ain't doing nothing. It doesn't look like to me. That's what's happening in the context. David's enemies, they want a new king. They want new relationships. They want some new drug, some new bottle, some new earthly pursuit to make them feel good. Because that's what we do. We pursue things that make us feel good. Right? Even Christianity is ripe with this. Come to Jesus and he'll make your life good. Which is actually very contrary to all the stories in the scriptures. Our lives don't get good. All of Jesus' disciples died on crosses, beheaded, stoned, left to die. David um, begs the Lord in these last verses, to shine the light of his presence on his children. His heart is full of joy. Why? Why is David's heart full of joy? He says, you know what? Everybody else is looking for some new God to kind of fill their belly with. And uh, they're finding stuff like some good wine. And they're finding stuff like some good food and some barns full. Bank accounts just overflowing. They're, they're finding some good in that. Isn't that all momentary? Isn't that all momentary? You can't take it with you when you die. So David ain't finding any joy in that. He's finding joy in the presence of God. He's finding joy because he knows the, the promise of heaven. And the promise of heaven has captured his conscience despite the court of public opinion. David's basically saying, you know what? Those guys, they can find joy in that. That's fine. They can think and say whatever they want. At the end of the day, I'm going to find my rest in you and you alone, O oh Lord. 
promise of heaven has captured his conscience despite what's happening out there in the court of public opinion. Nothing on earth can compare with the hope of eternity. There's no created thing that can bring more lasting joy than a relationship with your Creator. This truth, man, this kind of truth gives you a kind of peace that allows you to sleep because you know that true safety is not bound up in the momentary pleasures of this world. True safety is bound up in the hope of the resurrection. Conclusion, I don't know what sin you walked in with uh, this morning. I don't know what sin you struggle with. I don't know what kind of fear or hurt or pain you wrestle with or walked in with today like baggage over your shoulder. I don't know because I'm not God. It's so releasing to not have to know anyways. God knows, you know. Something I do know, something I do know is this. God wants you to come to him with your worry. He wants you to come to him with your doubt. He wants you to come to him with your fear. He wants you to ponder your sin against him. He wants you to feel the sting of his rebuke. And he wants you to surrender to his instruction. And he wants you to rest in his salvation as you look forward to the hope of the resurrection. That much I know. So God's not going to help you in the midst of six troubles to leave you wanting in the seventh. God doesn't do anything by halves and He'll never cease to help you until you cease to have a need. You will speak more boldly to other people if you have a more constant conversation with your Father in Heaven. And if you dare to face your Maker in prayer then you will not tremble when speaking to powerful men. Whatever you walked in with today, let's encourage you. You can lay that down at the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb. You can rest your weary heart in the hands of your Savior because this truth is true. The petty courts of public opinion don't hold a candle to the king's bench in heaven. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Pray, Father, as we close our time, that you would lead us more fully into your presence. Help us to help us to lay ourselves down at the foot of the cross in the doorway of an empty tomb, trusting that the verdict of your bench in heaven is more important than any opinion that either they or we could think. Trust you do that work in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.